Well, good morning, friends. My name is Dharmaraj, and my wife Darmini and I are going to move to Los Angeles next week to help with the work that's going on there. So in contemplating this question, how yoga has changed my life, I had to really reflect on, well, there are a lot of different aspects I could say and the ways that which yoga has changed my life. But I also had to look back at the yoga philosophy, and I wanted to just pull out one theme from that. Yogananda writes in the book, God is for Everyone, that the universal impulse of life is to avoid pain and find pleasure in the lower life forms. And then in the higher life forms, which we can count ourselves among, it is to avoid suffering and find happiness. He said happy, uh, pain, pleasure is counterfeit happiness. So at this point, we're looking for happiness and avoiding suffering. And that's how, uh, that's what brought me to the path. I know it's brought many of us to the path. Uh, as Davy said yesterday, if you've suffered, you're ready for Kriya Yoga. <laughs> I, I will add that a friend of mine recently said to me, well, I came onto the path and I wasn't suffering. I just, you know, thought I'm a yoga teacher. I should learn meditation. So teach me. Then I can learn it. Then he said, but in practicing it, I didn't realize how dry my life had been. And now I see that, and it's not as dry. So for me, I wasn't open to yoga, the philosophy of yoga, the spiritual path, God, none of it in the first part of my life. Whatever experiences I'd had with religion, I was raised in a family that was part Hindu and part Quaker, and neither of those expressions appealed to me at all. My exposure to other religions was very little, and that was fine with me. Um, I don't have this actual memory, but my mom tells me that uh, one of my earliest experiences was that I was being babysat by Jehovah's Witnesses. And they were fine people. But very early on into the babysitting, when I was about five, my mom said to me one weekend when I was home with her, oh, looks like it's going to rain. And I said, if Jehovah wills it to rain, it will rain. <laughs> um, so she called the babysitter and said, thanks, but obviously nothing wrong with that statement, but it wasn't my choice. It wasn't by my own will that I was making that statement. So just like Anandi, there were two drives that I had in my life, two things that really struck me as a, even as a child. I wanted to know what was true. I had to know what was true. And so I approached that by the only tool I saw in front of me, which was logic and science and mathematics. And so I just pursued that with great energy and gusto. And I you know, studied computer science, and I studied mathematics, and I saw, okay, in this I have found a path to ultimate truth about every aspect of reality. In this mathematics, I will find my ultimate fulfillment. Which probably, you know, for many of you, that's, there may be a fat logical fallacy in that statement, but for me, no, that was, it was all math. And um, What concerned me was I was becoming aware that this wasn't going to satisfy me that even though I was learning all these theorems and I was proving all these things that had already been proved actually and that <laughs> I would write these computer programs that no one ever cared about except me that 
there was something missing. There was some dimension of life missing in this. It also concerned me that as I uh, wanted to enter into a PhD program, and as I was going to commit myself to this path for the rest of my life, that my fellow disciples, my fellow PhD students, had no such intentions. This was during the Silicon, uh, the, the Silicon Valley boom, the dot-com boom. And so they were leaving the program uh, in droves, joining these startup companies. And I said, but we've forsaken riches in this pursuit. And I said, I haven't forsaken riches. Are you kidding? And I said, but we're devoting our lives to this one goal. One guy left. He said, I've got my PhD. I said, OK, what university are you joining? He said, I'm going to join a startup company. And then he said, I'm going to be the chief technology officer. It's a company called Google. <laughs> and I shook my head sadly. <laughs> he still is the, the chief technology officer of Google. Um, so that concerned me. And so I suffered, because I knew I'm on the wrong track somehow. But I don't know what, so let's keep going. The other part of my life that I was, the other fulfillment I was seeking was in love. And this was in college, and I fell in love, and then I had my heart broken. And this caused me great suffering. I was completely shattered in this. And you may think, well, I mean, <laughs> college, you know, I mean, find someone else, the whole thing. It wasn't that, <laughs> it wasn't that dramatic of a suffering. It wasn't like a car accident or a loss of, you know, a dear one or something. But for me, it just flattened me. And Swami Kriyananda has said that sometimes it takes just a touch of suffering in this life to reawaken all the sufferings we felt in the past and say, I don't want that. But what do I want? So my, uh, my college offered free counseling to students. And I thought, OK, I'll avail myself of this. Because my model of life, with all my axioms and theorems and postulates and everything, did not see this coming at all. <laughs> so I must be missing some part. So I went into counseling saying, I need help. So I talked to this counselor for many, many months, and over actually two years, once a week, talking to her when I was in college, just cleaning out the psychological closet. And it was fascinating to see these things and have a different perspective. She was wonderful. Finally, she asked me at the end of the, close to the end of the two years, let's do an experiment. What, ask yourself, in 10 years, she said, what would be the thing that you would most fear to happen? The one thing you don't want to happen 10 years from now. And I said, in 10 years from now, I don't want to be lonely. She said, yes. Good. I said, because I want love. She said, good. And I said, because love, marriage, relationship is the ultimate union. It's effortless harmony. It's eternal springtime. <laughs> She looked concerned. <laughs> and she said, the love you're talking about is divine love. 
And she said, you will never find that in another human being. And it took those two years, because my first instinct when she said divine love was, okay, lady, sorry I crossed the boundary. I know you're a Christian and you have a certain quota of people you have to convert. <laughs> I'm not into it. But I thought, okay, in two years, everything she said has been right. And so, and I know I'm missing something. So maybe I won't just clamp right down. Maybe this is it. And that was the same week that I discovered Autobiography of a Yogi. Now, you can imagine it. I like to imagine it as master in the astral world saying, oh, look. Oh, look, Dharmaraj wants to come back. Um, somebody, go. Go get him. He says that for all of us, of course. So Master sent Satyaki. I don't know, is Satyaki here? He and his wife recently moved to Ananda Village and their son, Liam. Uh, Satyaki came. Satyaki worked for Microsoft. He was also part of Ananda Seattle. He gave a wonderful talk at my college on computer science, and he weaved in some yoga philosophy. And I thought, huh, I know what that because I had studied a little yoga philosophy, not, you know, just academically. And so he said something about gunas. I said, gunas? Hmm. And what impressed me about him was that he was very creative and successful, but he was also centered. I didn't even know that word. And I fancied myself rather creative and <laughs> successful. But I was completely <laughs> uncentered. Because to me, to be calm meant to be asleep. <laughs> but he was calm like a, like a general, like a martial artist. He had poise. And I said, I don't have that, and I want that. So here it is. The student who invited him to speak came up to me and said, can you please join us for dinner? Can you go afterwards for dinner? So here it is. The opportunity. Master sent him. He's here. He's got the AY, you know, or the knowledge of it. He's about to deliver to me the chance of a lifetime. And he says, can you join us for dinner? And I said, no, I need to get a haircut. <laughs> and then, <laughs> then he said, no, no, the dinner isn't for an hour. And I said, okay, I have physics homework. And he said, please, just come. And, I, and so I, in that moment, I looked at him. And Satyaki was just winding up a power cord for some equipment that he had brought. And I thought, you know, huh. And a voice in my head said, something is being offered to you. So I said, OK, I'll go. And so he introduced me to Autobiography of a Yogi. And that book changed my life. And but it was all through that suffering. It was that suffering that opened me up to be open to something else beyond what I had experienced. And Master says of suffering that it is God's way of persuading us. And uh, you can ask, well, why does he have to persuade us that way? And I like the answer Haridas has given. Divine Mother does these things because she gets lonely. <laughs> and she wants us to call out to her. She wants us to think about her again. But Master, even in saying, when you break God's, law, God's laws, that's what causes you suffering, he softens it. And he says, and pretty bad laws they are, too. He said, if you put your hand in the fire, God will not say, I love you. He will burn you. He said, but he doesn't want you to put your hand in the fire. He has given you the freedom to put your, fire in, put your hand in or keep out. Why do you try the fire? 
And so that's what, what do we do when we put our hands in the fire? Well, what does a child do? As Dave Arshi was so beautifully uh, saying yesterday, a child cries. And that's all we need to do is just cry out. Divine Mother, why? Ow! I burned my hand on delusion again. Why did you let me do that? You're supposed to look after me. You just let me walk into that fire. Um, Master said, blame, give God the blame for your mistakes. And it always took me, it took a while to kind of wrap my, around, my mind around that. Because after all, I, I should be responsible for my mistakes. It's not God's fault. But if a child burns its finger on a flame, do you blame the child? What's the matter with you? No, you say, oops, sorry, how did you get to the fire? And so it's the same with us. Because the Divine Mother has made the fire so entrancing that delusion is to the point where you say, it says, here's the fire, and you say, I'm not going to touch you, I'm, I'll burn my hand. It says, oh, no, no, you won't. Say, so, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, so, but there's a, there's a point, though, that I want to also address in asking this question, how has yoga changed our lives? Because in the Gita it says, and this in a way addresses the fact that in some ways yoga hasn't changed our lives. And I'll explain what I mean. The Gita says a failed yogi is reborn in a prosperous home or to a family of yogis. And sometimes in reading this statement we can think, okay, I guess it's, that's what I have to look forward to because, you know, <laughs> I don't think... It's just the opposite. It's that we were yogis before, and that's why we're here now. This is the life after that one. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It says, he recovers the yogic discrimination he attained formerly and sets himself with even greater zeal to achieve final spiritual liberation. The power of former yoga practice is sufficient to impel, as it were, the reborn yogi on his upward path. As Anandi was saying, 23rd birthday, nothing's right. I've got to do something about it. Being impelled toward, back toward the spiritual path. And so it is not that we, any of us, were born in a particular place to a particular family and then happened to kind of get interested in spiritual things as a hobby and then become yogis. We were born yogis. And we happened to have to work out some karma in the first part of life before we came back to the spiritual path. And what is that drive? What is that yearning? Well, the yearning, of course, the, the yearning that we're impelled towards in our hearts is for yoga itself. Yoga means union. And I'd like to close with a song which I will read the words to, not sing. <laughs> Partly because I don't know the melody. But this is a song Swami Kriyananda wrote uh, two weeks ago. And it describes, in my mind, perfectly that, that yearning for final union. It's called Through a Long and Lonely Night. Through a long and lonely night, I've whispered your name. Through the pains and joys of life, I'm always the same. Tempt me no longer, this world's not for me. I have known all its charms. Fold me now in your arms, make me free. Lifetimes have passed, I've called out to you through hope and despair. 
Lifetimes I've known the goals that I sought awaited nowhere. Help me remember there's one goal alone. All I am is yours. All I've done is yours. I'm your own.